0: Strange Studies of Strange Stories. I remember how that night I lay awake in the wagon, lit in a tender, delicious ecstasy of excitement, my burning cheek pressed against the impeccable linen of the pillow and the pounding of my heart mimicking that of the great piston ceaselessly thrusting the train that bore me through the night away from Paris, away from girlhood. Away from the white enclosed quietude of my mother's apartment Into the unguessable country of marriage And I remember I tenderly imagined how at this very moment My mother would be moving slowly about the narrow bedroom I had left behind forever Folding up and putting away all my little relics The tumbled garments I would not need anymore The scores for which there had been no room in my trunks the concert programs I'd abandoned. She would linger over this torn ribbon and that faded photograph with all the half-joyous, half-sorrowful emotions of a woman on her daughter's wedding day. And in the midst of my bridal triumph, I felt a pang of loss as if, when he had put the gold band on my finger, I had, in some way, ceased to be her child in becoming his wife.
1: Welcome guests to Strange Studies of Strange Stories, the podcast in which we discuss all the best in classic genre fiction, like great pistons ceaselessly thrusting.
2: I'm Chad Pfeiffer. (laughs) And I'm Chris Lackey. Today, we are delving into complicated relationships as we explore the writings of Angela Carter with her story, The Bloody Chamber. This is our free episode of the month. If you like what you hear, please consider checking out all of our rad levels on Patreon.
1: We do four shows a month, plus a listener comments show, plus extra credit shows on movies, comics, sometimes manimal. (laughs) Uh, There's even a very special episode in which Chris learns a a valuable lesson about kidnapping. Boy, do I. (laughs) We should warn you that this story is a little longer, so we will be breaking it into two episodes. And we should also warn you there will be explicit sexual content in this story and in our discussion of it, I hope. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So if you were tuning in to hear about a story called The Bloody Chamber and we're expecting wholesome content. Yeah. There are probably a bunch of other things you need to work out in your life. So feel free to move along.
2: (laughs) We have never covered Angela Carter before on the show. This is our first time.
1: I have to say thank you to our listeners for suggesting this author. When we covered the Terry Pratchett story Troll Bridge, which was a riff on the Three Billy Goats Gruff fairy tale. Mm -hmm. Listener Stacey Kahn wrote in to say, you know who else has used fairy tales as a jumping off point? angela carter and that comment caught me on a book buying day here in madison so i went out and i snapped up the collection the bloody chamber it was an excellent recommendation i'm really enjoying reading it thank you to stacy and and for everybody who taunted us into covering this author there were Mm -hmm. quite a few speaking of madison we are joined today by reader michelle sawyer a madison actor
2: and writer we're so glad to have her on the show welcome michelle welcome let's give some bio on angela carter before we get into the story let's do it angela olive pierce was born in 1940 in eastbourne england Her mother a cashier, her father a journalist.
1: And in your notes here, I see you'd written, when she was a small child, she was evacuated to Yorkshire during the war with her grandmother. Hmm. Why was she at war with her grandmother? (laughs) I looked everywhere. I couldn't find any details about this. Was the check in her birthday card too small? What happened?
2: Uh, uh, no, no. It was World War II. And oh. the bombings that were happening, She was a lot of kids were sent up to Yorkshire during the war because <laughs> it wasn't bombed as much. And they wanted you know, kids to be safe to make sure that she was taken care of. Her grandmother went with her.
1: I see. And then That's that it. war happened later with grandma. Got it. <laughs> I did get some details on Carter's youth from a biography called... The Invention of Angela Carter by Edmund Gordon, Mm. who is a lecturer in English at King's College London. The London Review Bookshop actually has a short video of Gordon introducing this story and the collection, and it's on YouTube. It's about four minutes long. I think it's Mm. worth a, a watch before you read this, if you do choose to. I will link out in the show notes to Edmund Gordon talking about it. But there is some paraphrasing of his book in an article about the book in The New Yorker. It says the following. Carter was born in 1940, as you said grew up in a quiet, middle-class suburb of London, the second child of a straight-laced mother, Olive, who turned off the TV if a divorced actor came on the screen. That's how straight-laced she was. Wow. She had a father, Hugh, who was the night editor of London's Press Association, a journalist, as he said. Both parents spoiled Angela outrageously. She was crammed with treats, bombarded with kittens, and storybooks. Her mother never put her to bed after until after midnight when Hugh got back from work. She wanted her company and even then often let her stay up. She grew to be a tall, pudgy child with a stammer. Between those disadvantages and extreme shyness, which she covered with an aloof and frosty manner, she had few friends. Olive redoubled her attentions. Angela was not allowed to dress herself or to go to the bathroom alone. Finally, yeah, her mother was very smothering with her attentions. Finally, she rebelled, went on a diet, lost a ton of the weight and changed from this pudgy, obliging girl to a skinny, rude girl. She slouched around in short skirts and fishnet stockings, smoking and saying offensive things to her mother.
2: Wow. Well, she went on to school in South London and became a journalist, following in her father's footsteps at the Croydon Advertiser. She was married twice, first in 1960 to Paul Carter, then divorcing in 1972. But before her divorce in 1969, she used prize money from the Somerset Mom Award, a writing contest, to leave her husband and move to Tokyo, which I thought is pretty weird.
1: Yeah. When she was younger, her teachers wanted Angela to attend Oxford, which would not have been possible for somebody of her background. But because of the 1944 Butler Act, which was a little like the GI Bill here in America, there were grants for gifted children to go to elite schools. But when her parents said, you know, that's great if you go to Oxford, we'll get a little apartment there so we can be close to you. She was like, oh, no, I got to get married to escape these people. <laughs> so those opening paragraphs we heard half shades of that. You know, there's mm-hmm. a, like a transfer of ownership from the mother to the husband with only this very brief train ride of escape in between, Right. which is just to say that the first marriage that she embarked upon when she was only 20 years old wasn't perhaps out of love right? and, and more out of a chance to escape. Paul was an industrial chemist who moonlighted as a producer and seller of English folk song records. And again, I'm getting this from the New Yorker article. Soon the marriage was failing. Paul suffered from engulfing depressions. Sometimes he and Angela barely spoke for days. She felt swollen with unexpressed emotion. I want to touch him all the time with my hands and my mouth, she wrote in her diary. Poor love that annoys him. The note of sarcasm here is interesting. Through some miracle, Angela, who had little sexual self-confidence, she once described herself as a great, lumpy, butch cow, titless and broad-beamed, did not allow Paul's withdrawal to demoralize her. She wanted to save herself. On her 22nd birthday, her uncle Cecil, knowing that she was unhappy, invited her to lunch at an Italian restaurant and told her to apply to university. As she recalled, he said to her, if you've got a degree, you can always get a job. You can leave your husband anytime you want. She did go to university in Bristol where, quote, she became an ardent feminist, but not an orthodox one. Her concern was not with justice. She hated the idea of put upon suffering women and implied that they had it coming by being such weaklings. Mm. She wanted women to seize what they wanted, power, freedom, sex, and she saw no fundamental difference between the sexes that could prevent that. As she wrote to a friend, Carol Roth, somebody asked me who my favorite women writers were the other day, meaning, I guess, some kind of writers who expressed a specifically feminine sensibility. I said Emily Bronte, who's pure butch, (laughs) and cursed myself afterwards because the greatest feminine writer who's ever lived is Dostoevsky, followed closely by Herman Melville who has just the kind of relish of beautiful boys that emancipated ladies such as yourself express. (laughs) And D.H. Lawrence is infinitely more feminine than Jane Austen, if one is talking about these qualities of sensitivity, vulnerability, and perception traditionally ascribed by male critics to female novelists. D.H. Lawrence's tragedy is that he thought he was a man. Wow. You know, she thought these male writers have a feminine viewpoint and these female writers don't. And the idea that A woman writing necessarily has a quote-unquote feminine viewpoint. It's just something men are making up, you know? So the writing award you mentioned, I'm winding around to this Japan trip. The writing award you mentioned was specifically for foreign travel. That's what she was supposed to do with it. And Uh it was based on her early work. In Shadow Dance from 1966, her first novel, a man named Honey Buzzard carves up the face of an annoyingly virtuous girl, Jelaine, After she gets out of the hospital, he finishes the job, strangling her and leaving her naked corpse in an attic. Oh, my God. A year after that came the magic toy shop Mm -hmm. in which the orphaned heroine is sent to live with her uncle, a sadistic puppeteer. In one scene, he forces her to play Lita to a mechanical swan. Oh and God! We've talked about Lita and the Swan and that oh, no. sexual relationship in the past. So these are things that she was writing about—some pretty unrestrained stuff from uh-huh. an English author Jeez. of the period. And when she received this award, she wanted to go somewhere very non-English without her husband, and and that was Japan.
2: There, she said that she learned what it was to be a woman and became radicalized. She talks about her experiences in her book *Nothing Sacred*, which came out in 1982. And I wonder what it was like for a Western woman to live in post-war Japan.
1: She met a man there. And again, this is from the New Yorker article. Within a few weeks of her arrival at a Tokyo coffee house, a Japanese man, Sozo Araki, 24 years old, six years her junior, stopped at her table. She described the scene in a later unpublished story. Where are you from? He asked her. England, she said. That must be terribly boring, he said, and gave her the great international seducer's smile. They ended up that evening in a love hotel, Mm -hmm. the kind that rents rooms by the hour. The next morning, she went back to where she was staying to take a shower while he played pachinko, a Japanese version of pinball. When they met again, had breakfast, they went to another hotel. Gordon tries hard to determine what Carter and Araki talked about when they weren't having sex. (laughs) During this time, you know, she decided to divorce and there were consequences for that. While Angela was back in England that winter renewing her visa... Olive, her mother, suffered a pulmonary embolism. Angela went to the hospital, but Olive, upon seeing her, turned her face to the wall. She had always disliked Paul, but she disliked divorce more. Remember? (laughs) Can't can't watch a movie with a divorced actor in it. Mm -hmm. And she died a few days later, unfortunately. Eventually, Carter returned to England permanently. In 1976, she accepted a commission to translate Charles Perrault's fairy tales. After the Perrault volume was published, she embarked on... The bloody Chamber with her own reconceived versions of Prawl and the Brothers Grimm.
2: She spent most of the 70s and 80s traveling around the world, getting residencies at universities, including the University of Sheffield and Brown University. In 1977, she met Mark Pierce, with whom she had a son. They weren't married until close to her death. As you said, in 1979, the story was published with her collection called The Bloody Chamber. That's the same year she wrote The Sadian Woman and The Ideology of Pornography. In that essay, she makes a feminist reappraisal of the work of the Marquis de Sade. In it, she argues that de Sade was a moral pornographer, one that analyzed the relations between the sexes. She saw him as a man who wouldn't be an enemy of women as his views attacked the patriarchy. She wrote a lot of fiction, but was also a working journalist for most of her life being published in the guardian, the independent and the new Statesman. I know her from the Neil Jordan film, the company of wolves, which came out in 1984, which she was involved with making quite a bit because she wrote the screenplay. She Mm -hmm. also wrote a screenplay for the movie version or adaptation of the magic toy shop, which was based on her 1967 novel. Unfortunately, Carter passed away in 1992 from lung cancer and -hmm. she was only 51. Now, you
1: mentioned her second husband. Mm -hmm. A quick little detail on that that I'll, I don't know, just so we end on an up note. Uh, One day, two years after her return from Japan, one of her water faucets burst. She had seen a construction worker in the house opposite, and she ran to get him. His name was Mark Pierce, a 19-year-old. She was now 34. Wow. He came in, Carter said, never left. He was strikingly handsome. Friends said he looked like Jesus. Tellingly, she claimed that he looked like a werewolf. (laughs) I mean, you don't get a hotter guy than werewolf Jesus, do you? <laughs> no. Construction worker, 19-year-old. He was silent most of the time, even hotter. But she didn't mind because she liked to do the talking just as she liked being older. Yeah. He went on doing construction work. She went on writing. So that's pretty amazing. Wow. Also, apparently she was a very good cook. Salman Rushdie told Gordon, the, the biographer, that when he was in hiding after the Ayatollah Khomeini had issued the fatwa against him, His bodyguards always enjoyed it when he went to visit Carter because she invariably had a nice meal for them to eat and they could watch TV. (laughs) So some nice things at the end of that biography. A fascinating person, obviously, that we could talk about for a long time. Mm -hmm. Now, we know that the Bloody Chambers take off on a fairy tale. What do we know about this fairy tale?
2: This story, The Bloody Chamber, is based on the myth of Bluebeard,
1: something I was unfamiliar with. It was mentioned in The Island of Dr. Moreau. Moreau says to Prendick, Our little establishment here contains a secret or so, it is a kind of Bluebeard's chamber, in fact. Mm. I obviously had heard it previous to that, but I think I probably thought it was about a pirate or something.
2: I did too. I thought it was because Blackbeard, Bluebeard, it got yeah. confused. Uh, Dr. Barreau, you mentioned up there, he's referring to the old French folktale called Barbe Bleu, the most famous version of which is from 1697. It was published by Barbin in Paris. Well, let's hear it. Now, that version of the story has a nobleman Bluebeard, throwing a party and inviting his neighbor and his many daughters. Bluebeard is looking for a new wife, even though he's been married six times before. The neighbor's youngest daughter is seduced by his wealth and accepts his marriage proposal. He takes her to the countryside once they're married. Bluebeard gives her the keys to his palace and says that she's free to go anywhere but one room. And then he announces that he's got to leave the country for some reason and she's left alone in the castle. This girl decides that she's going to invite her sister and her friends and some cousins over for a big rager. Eventually, she's overcome with curiosity, and she looks in the forbidden room, and there she finds it's blood-filled, and there are the bodies of Bluebeard's previous wives. She's so freaked out that she drops the key in the blood, but the key is magic, and the blood won't come off when she tries to clean it. So Bluebeard comes home early, finds the bloody key, and he knows what's up. He's going to kill her on the spot, but she begs for one last prayer with her sister before he murders her. But just then her brother shows up and kills him. She inherits all the money and she helps her sisters get married and then they all live happily ever after. I feel like this is a curiosity almost killed the cat kind of lesson, but the ending of it really subverts that in a way. Yeah, She gets away with it. You know, she chased the money and then in the end she got the money.
1: Yeah. I guess the the lesson of that version is set up a rich person and take their stuff. (laughs) Get your brother in on it because he's good for killing. I don't know. Now, typically when I heard it or the versions that I was familiar with, Mm -hmm. there was no rescue. The whole point of the story was the discovery of the other wives. It's like an open ending. So she opens the door, sees all the other wives. Uh Oh, I'm next. And it's like almost like he's lurking around the corner. So it's more like the slasher movie trope of the preppy guy, Chad, falling out of the cabinet before the. (laughs) Final Maybe. girl gets attacked.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Right. Maybe it was to be more palatable, you know, that this was a published version of the story. Maybe it was the story that was passed around and they were like, well, you know, we want to sell copies of it. So let's have it have a good ending where she wins.
1: It's that executive added happy ending that I think I was even aware of with a big bad wolf when I was a kid, because you know, the woodcutter shows up and, and lops the wolf's head off and all of the people who were devoured spring out right. and are alive uh-huh. still. And uh-huh. I remember thinking, what? No way. <laughs> no, they got eaten. Sorry. There's cost to dealing with the, <laughs> the big bad wolf. <laughs>
2: right, exactly. Now, this story seems to come from Brittany in France, and it may be a version of a story from the 15th century about the serial killer Gilles de Ray. It was rumored that he was a wife killer, but it turned out he was actually a child murderer.
1: And, and Gilles de Ray is a real person.
2: Yeah. And there was also the Breton king Conamore, the Accursed. Conamore was a real guy from around 540 AD, where he was once the king of Domnonia which is modern Cornwall. He married Trephina after his first wife died. He killed Trephina soon after, supposedly. Again, the historical records aren't clear about this, and he might not have done those things. But the legend of him lives on. The legend states that he was married not once, but three times before Trafina. Trophina didn't want to marry him, but she only did so because he threatened to invade her father's lands. Now, while he's away, she finds a room with relics of his deceased wives. She prays for the souls of these dead wives, and they come back as ghosts and tell Trophina that if she gets pregnant, Connemore will kill her because a prophecy states that Connemore will be killed by his own son. Okay. So, of course, Connemore comes back and discovers that his wife is pregnant, but he doesn't kill her right away. I think he wants to see if he's gonna have a daughter. I don't. It doesn't explain why, mm-hmm. in the version I was reading, why he doesn't kill her. But when the time comes to give birth, the ghost helped Trafina escape into the woods and have the baby. Ghost midwives are awesome. I didn't even know that was a thing. So frightening. So helpful. <laughs> She's able to hide her son before Connemore finds her and then kills her. So you think, okay, that's where the story ends. Yeah. No. Good old St. Gildas just wanders by and he finds Trephina's body and then resurrects her from the dead. Oh, good. Which I didn't know that was a superpower in the repertoire of the saints, but there you go. He's got that one. Mm-hmm. They live out their lives until Trofina dies, an older woman. Somehow, Connemar finds his grown son, and you think, oh, okay, this is where the prophecy is going to come true, and he's going to kill him. Yeah. No, Connemar kills his son. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> Not where I... I didn't understand. Well, I think it's because maybe he becomes sainted later, and saints have to be murdered. They can't just... Right. There's got to be a thing with the saints.
1: Well, and also from the right perspective, that's a positive hidden lesson. You know, you can make your own future. Don't believe the predictions people make. Oh. If you work hard enough, you can kill the son was prophecy to kill you.
2: <laughs> now, so, in Brittany, Trephina and her son, Tremour, if I pronounce that right, were made saints. And there's still a village in France called Saint Trephina. OK. So this legend has been around a very long time.
1: I think to me, it has that element of curiosity, killed the cat, but that seems better served by like the Orpheus looking back story, mm-hmm. which is, you know, have faith, don't don't confirm, don't right. verify. But I feel that it's more about in the Bluebeard story, people revealing their true nature. Don't judge a book by its cover. Seems like too sweet an expression, mm-hmm. but yeah. because the specific fairy tale, it really is a deconstruction of other fairy tales in a way. It's like a fairy tale warning against fairy tales. This girl is sold a happily ever after story. Mm-hmm. And then she finds out well things are a little different in reality right this guy she marries he snores among other annoying habits like murdering his other (laughs) wives you don't know what you're getting into and so i think that it's a already working on a meta level to some extent
2: yeah well let's see what angela carter brings to this tale our unnamed narrator is a 17 year old from paris who is an amazing pianist her father died in the war when she was young and her mother raised her her mother was a badass in her day.
1: Yes, her mother had a, quote, adventurous girlhood in Indochina, daughter of a rich tea planter. My eagle-featured, indomitable mother. What other student at the conservatory could boast that her mother had outfaced a junk full of Chinese pirates, <laughs> nursed a village through a visitation of the plague, shot a man-eating tiger with her own hand, and all before she was as old as I? It's <laughs> pretty cool. I can't help but think of our protagonist a little as Joan Fontaine, the actress from uh, the Hitchcock movie Rebecca. Things that happen in this introduction to this story are very similar to her character's journey. It's a great film from 1940 when this author was born. It's based on the Daphne du Du Maurier novel, which Mm -hmm. we've covered that author before as well. The full film of Rebecca is actually on YouTube right now. So I'm going to link out in the show notes to that if people want to continue down this road. It's a a great movie.
2: Now, the narrator and her mother are poor, and it seems she's engaged to this super rich guy, a marquee, that she's marrying for his money. She's not in love with him.
1: I think maybe she hopes that she will fall in love with him. But obviously, the initial decision is based on improving the circumstances. Her mother says, are you sure you love him? And she replies, well, I'm sure I want to marry him.
2: Now, we find her on a train on the way to her husband's castle. I was confused about the time period of the story. At first, because it was a train, I thought maybe it's the 1800s. But then we find that there are cars and telephones, so it's at least the
1: 1940s. It has that gothic novel setup of the young girl with great hair being whisked off to a mystery estate to this ancestral home.
2: She's sleeping on the train in their own car. He's so wealthy that they just have their own whole car to themselves. Her husband sleeps in the room next to hers with the door open, and she could hear him breathing, which I think might be a polite way of saying he's snoring like a foghorn. (laughs) Because if she could hear him over a moving train, he's got to be really loud. She can also smell him and remarks often that he smells of leather and spices. He's a big man and he's older than her by a lot. He's got gray hair and his black beard and hair, but his face has few wrinkles.
1: She comments that his face seems to her like a mask and his eyes have an absolute absence of
2: light good quality and a husband <laughs> the narrator speaks of the castle uh, which is by the sea is, is it in Brittany?
1: well she's leaving paris and so yeah it's probably north up on the coast it also says he's the richest man in, in france so i don't think they're leaving the
2: country yes this ancestral estate is where he was born and raised as well yes she says when she agreed to marry him you know he proposed to her and she said yes he didn't move He just let out a long sigh.
1: Yeah, like it was something that he'd wanted quite a lot. It says, I thought, oh, how he must want me. And it was as though the imponderable weight of his desire was a force I might not withstand. Not by virtue of its violence, but because of its very gravity. I think the key idea is that this character is the innocent, but she's not innocent. She has sexual desire. She has vanity that's growing. She knows she's possibly corruptible and is maybe okay with that. Yeah. So it's a little bit more of, um, she's not the helpless sparrow.
2: No. When the Marquis proposed to the narrator, he gave her a ring, which had a huge opal on it. And this ring belonged to his great-grandmother and you know, his grandmother and mother and so on. The narrator's old nursemaid, who still lived with her and her mother before, pointed out that opals are bad luck. And that he must have also given that same ring to his other wives who were dead, (laughs) Mm -hmm. which the narrator doesn't like. She doesn't like thinking about him being with anybody else but her. Of course not. And so that prompts her to do a little digging. And she finds out that his last wife turned up missing just three months ago, supposedly dead in a boating accident, which is not a lot of downtime to get married again. You know, three Mm -hmm. months. In this girl's lifetime, he's been married three times in the last 17 years, basically.
1: And that most recent wife was, quote, a Romanian countess, a lady of high fashion. I thought, of course, oh, he married a Dracula. (laughs) Turns out... Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Later in the story, we discover she. there's a photo of her. She says a typical night in Transylvania and her name is Carmilla. Yep. I was a little distracted. I don't know if this happened to you once I learned that, but I'm wondering, is there some weird vampire
2: angle on the way? I thought maybe they were going to introduce that he was some kind of vampire or something like that, but I forgot about it because there's so much other stuff going on in the story that, you know, once I read that, I go, oh, that's weird. And then promptly didn't think about it again.
1: In some respects, it made him a more formidable antagonist because, wow, not only did he kill his ex-wives, one of them was a vampire, (laughs) still killed her. And then the wife prior to Carmilla was a very famous artist model who they say drank herself to death on absinthe.
2: And his first wife was an opera singer that the narrator had actually seen when she was a child. She thinks to herself, what am I compared to a diva? I, the poor widow's child with my mouse-colored hair that still bore the kinks of the plaits from which it had so recently been freed, my bony hips, my nervous pianist fingers. She doesn't see herself as attractive or powerful, at least at this point in the story. Now, the night before the wedding was to take place, she is to see Tristan and Isolde, uh, Wagner opera, and this ties back to Connemar who was supposedly the origin of King Mark from that. So it all ties oh. together.
1: Well, that's also what she had seen his first, you know, the opera singer wife that he had sing when she was little. Right. So it ties in within the story
2: as mm-hmm. well. Now She was given a fancy, sexy dress to wear for this opera so that the Marquis could basically show off his new young bride. And he also has her wear a ruby choker, jewels that go around her neck like a version of a cutthroat.
1: And super decadent to do this. It says, after the terror, in the early days of the Directory, the aristocrats who'd escaped the guillotine had an ironic fad of tying a red ribbon around their necks at just the point where the blade would have sliced it through. A red ribbon like the memory of a wound. And his grandmother, taken with the notion, had her ribbon made up in rubies. Such a gesture of luxurious defiance. (laughs) Wow check this out peasants you didn't get me
2: oh man the narrator sees herself in the mirror with this dress and this choker and she is shocked by how attractive she looks
1: i saw how much that cruel necklace became me and for the first time in my innocent and confined life i sensed in myself a potentiality for corruption that took my breath away
2: now we move back to the present the train is pulling into the station she awakens to find her husband standing in the doorway staring at her I felt a certain tension in the pit of my stomach to be watched in such silence. He lights a match and he says, soon, like soon we're going to be doing it. (laughs) And again, she's afraid but excited by this.
1: I mean, they're married, but they didn't have their wedding night. It's been delayed until this moment they could do it in the bed in which he was born. Because who doesn't want that?
2: (laughs) Well, you know, this is, it's cyclical. The chauffeur picks them up and takes them to this amazing castle by the seaside. The castle is not just by the sea, it's in it. It's an island that is connected by a causeway, which is a road that appears and disappears with the tide. And the most famous one of these is Mont-Saint-Michel, which is in Normandy. Mm. It's this full walled castle out in the middle of the ocean. This road appears and then disappears twice a day. Wow. And it, it's like on a mountain. So the, the whole city kind of goes up around this walled outside and there's a castle on top of it it's gorgeous and i'm guessing that that is the inspiration for this place and then we
1: have the scene of the poor girl showing up at the estate and she's now the lady of the manor the highest status yet in this circumstance she's really at a disadvantage desperately wanting the approval of her own servants mm-hmm. they know how things are supposed to run she knows they will be evaluating her not just by the standards of her position as the lady of the house. But against the other wives, whom Mm. all seem to be quite a bit more spectacular than her. And that's why it reminded me of Rebecca. In that movie, Rebecca is the dead wife. The title of the movie is about somebody who's not even there. She's not in the story, other than as that specter of perfection that Joan Fontaine's character will never realize when she moves into her position. And this is wickedly pointed out to her very often by a creepy, judgmental housekeeper. Yeah. The same kind of. Creepy judgmental housekeeper that's in Shirley Jackson's Haunting of Hill House. It's one of my favorite characters. Yeah. We we have it here as well.
2: Now when she meets this housekeeper, the woman who runs the castle, she discovers that this woman is fiercely loyal to the Marquis, having helped raise him. So she, she he's practically a mother to this guy. The narrator mm-hmm. knows that it's to stay good with her, she has to stay good with her husband. Yeah. The housekeeper says something to the Marquis in their native Breton language which makes him laugh. And the narrator just assumes that it's something lewd about the wedding night.
1: Well, he doesn't bother to translate it for her. It's oh, right. You yes. can tell when somebody's talking about you in a foreign language. Right, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now he takes she probably her, looked her up and down.
2: He takes her up to their room. It's insanely ornate with a bed bigger than our old room. There are many mirrors fanned out. And he says, gesturing to the reflections, see, I've got myself a whole harem.
0: I found that I was trembling. My breath came thickly. I could not meet his eye and turned my head away out of pride, out of shyness, and watched a dozen husbands approach me in a dozen mirrors and slowly, methodically, teasingly unfasten the buttons of my jacket and slip it from my shoulders. Enough! No, more. Off comes the skirt. And next, the blouse of apricot linen that cost more than the dress I had for First Communion. The play of the waves outside in the cold sun glittered on his monocle. His movement seemed to me deliberately coarse, vulgar. The blood rushed to my face again and stayed there. And yet, you see, I guessed it might be so, that we should have a formal disrobing of the bride— A ritual from the brothel. Sheltered as my life had been, how could I have failed, even in the world of prim bohemia in which I lived, to have heard hints of his world?
2: So ribald! (laughs) He takes her clothes off until she is only in her shoes and gloves. But he's not in a hurry.
1: He and his London tailoring, she bears a lamb chop, most pornographic of all confrontations. And so my purchaser unwrapped his bargain, And as at the opera, when I had first seen my flesh in his eyes, I was aghast to feel myself stirring.
2: She is turned on by this, but she also finds herself attractive and sexual and powerful. Mm -hmm. Now, before things start happening, he says, oh, I got some business to deal with. And he just leaves her, filled with anticipation for the wedding night and she's a bit frustrated by this tease that he's done to her and she gets dressed and goes down to play the piano she finds his library and starts going through his books the narrator finds paintings by Rops, moreau ensor Gauguin. All works of women in mystical settings with concerns about good and evil and right and wrong. Hmm. And then she finds a book with sex acts depicted in them. And then she looks at them with fascination.
0: It
1: seems that her husband is a collector of vintage pornography.
2: But then she finds an engraving of the immolation of the wives of the sultan, depicting the burning of the wives on a funeral pyre of the dead sultan. You know, Hmm. which he dies, so his wives are going to go with him. whether they're dead or not
1: yeah makes sense
2: so the marquee comes up behind her as she's looking at these books and he says have the nasty pictures scared baby baby mustn't play with grown-ups toys until she's learned how to handle them
1: get out of here with that that's so creepy
2: (laughs) it's so creepy get out
1: of here i don't want to be hearing that baby talk (laughs) stuff
2: but some people are into that and it seems like maybe she is and he kisses her and then he takes her upstairs Before they get down to business, though, he has her put on the ruby choker.
1: And there are those mirrors everywhere.
0: A dozen husbands impaled a dozen brides while the mewing gulls swung on invisible trapezes in the empty air outside. I was brought to my senses by the insistent shrilling of the telephone. He lay beside me, felled like an oak, breathing stertorously as if he had been fighting with me. In the course of that one-sided struggle, I had seen his deathly composure shatter like a porcelain vase flung against a wall. I had heard him shriek and blaspheme at the orgasm. I had bled. And perhaps I had seen his face without its mask, and perhaps I had not. Yet I had been infinitely disheveled by the loss of my virginity.
1: I think that's a good place to stop. Yeah, you know, I'm starting to think that the bloody chamber might mean
2: more than one thing. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, maybe a turning point (laughs) for our protagonist. But who's on the phone? We'll have to wait to find out. Hey,
1: I want to say thank you to our reader, Michelle Sawyer. Such a great job. I also want to thank some of our patrons, because without them, this show would not be possible. Oh, no. And I'm going to start by thanking Arif Khan.
2: I'd like to thank Anna Cardozo.
1: I'd like to thank Eric Vaughn.
2: Shambler Tree, thank you.
1: (laughs) Chris Stevens, thank you so much. Charles
2: DiTusa, thank you.
1: James Toms, thank you.
2: Terrence John Ruckendorfer, thank you.
1: Mike Davey, thank you. Teresa Heiss, thank you. That's all we have for this week. We're going to be back with more of The Bloody Chamber next week. Thank you for tuning in to Strange Studies of Strange Stories.
0: Strange Studies of Strange Stories.